1: That means that that kid, that teenager, is going to be more open, more flexible, more likely to follow your lead than if they were increasingly in a state of resistance. So even if you don't agree, using this strategy with sincerity, so not as a ploy, you know, really putting yourself in their shoes, that has the most profound effect on the brain in terms of creating that state of of increased collaboration, cooperation, etc.
2: That was Dr. Adele LaFrance on Psychologists Off The Clock.
0: We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie
2: Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of ACT Daily Journal.
0: I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the upcoming book, Work, Parent, Thrive.
3: And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of ACT Metaphors.
0: We hope
2: you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life.
3: Thank you for listening to Psychologists
2: Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders,
3: neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. Psychologists Off the Clock is proud to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. Praxis is the premier provider of evidence-based training for mental health professionals. Praxis offers both live and on-demand courses with options for beginner as well as more advanced clinicians. Praxis is also known for its top acceptance and commitment therapy trainers. So if you're a clinician and you want to level up your ACT skills, Praxis is the place. And if you're like us at Psychologists Off the Clock and you want to transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training, check out Praxis Continuing Education. You can get a coupon code on the offers page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com sponsors.
2: Hello, everyone. This is Debbie. I'm here today to bring you the first episode in a two-part series on emotion-focused family therapy. And this first interview is with Dr. Adele LaFrance. She's one of the creators of emotion-focused family therapy. And it was a real honor to have Adele on. And next week, we will be hearing from another EFFT therapist, Dr. Mindy Solomon. i did a training in EFFT, and I found it super helpful in my life as a parent and also in my work as a therapist. And I've told a number of my clients about it because there's a lot of really useful strategies. And also, this is a therapy that we've never talked about on the podcast before.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of our missions on this podcast is to share evidence-backed psychology uh, treatments and and strategies. And we do end up talking a lot about acceptance and commitment therapy, but there's lots of evidence-backed treatments that I think are important to spread the word about, and this is one of them. So I would just encourage folks not to get too hung up on the acronym, on the acronyms of any of the evidence-based treatments, and to focus more on, on the content, on the skills that get taught. Um, and this is a really very cool treatment because it's very much focused on relationships and emotions in relationships and and intimate relationships and gives you some really concrete practical tools. And that is a huge reason why I think this is a very, very cool episode. So don't get hooked on the acronyms, but really know that this comes from a place of scientific-backed work and has a lot of practical applications.
2: I think where this particular approach is really helpful, I think, is engaging the entire family in helping with these emotionally charged situations. So whether you have you know, a family member, maybe you have a child or a spouse or other family member who just has big feelings, who maybe gets dysregulated, or things just kind of build up. You know, I think that sometimes you might feel a little bit hopeless, like, what can I do? Well, according to this model, actually, the family, the parents, the caregivers, whoever's involved, play a crucial role of supporting the person. And while it's not all on you as something for you to fix, like there are ways that you can respond that are going to be more effective. So they use strategies like emotion coaching, and very concrete ideas of how to validate feelings and how to respond and problem solve around feelings in these charged situations where you might just feel like I don't know what to say and do here. You know, everybody's escalated. Maybe you have a super feeler in your family. Maybe you yourself get dysregulated. And this can help you be a little bit more effective and also feel empowered. My engagement in this situation matters. And I have some tools that I can use that are going to be more helpful than what I've been
0: doing. You'll leave this episode feeling empowered with some ideas of things that you can do in complicated situations that maybe have left you feeling quite disempowered in the past. So we hope that you do get a lot out of this episode. Dr.
2: Adele LaFrance is a clinical psychologist, research scientist, and co-developer of Emotion-Focused Family Therapy. She's the co-author of two books. The first is What to Say to Kids When Nothing Seems to Work, A Practical Guide for Parents and Caregivers, and Emotion-Focused Family Therapy, a Transdiagnostic Model for Caregiver-Focused Interventions, and that's a treatment manual for clinicians as published by the APA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Adele is passionate about helping parents to support their kids of all ages in a way that is informed by the latest developments in neuroscience. She and her colleagues have a wealth of caregiving resources available at no cost at mentalhealthfoundations.ca. Is that right, Adele?
1: It's exactly right, yes. Yeah, check
2: it out. It's amazing and it's free. Mm -hmm. A lot of the videos are free, which is incredible.
1: Everything to do with caregivers is free of charge.
2: Wonderful. What a service, Adele. Adele has an interest in mechanisms and models of healing, including emotion processing, spirituality, and family-based psychedelic psychotherapy. And currently, she's involved in research on MDMA and psilocybin-assisted therapy for eating disorders.
3: Mm -hmm. That's Um, right.
2: And she's a frequent keynote speaker at professional conferences and... Does media appearances related to emotion, mental health, and the science of psychedelics
1: That's right
2: well, welcome, Adele, and thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to talk to you about all these different components of your work. Thank you, Debbie. I'm
1: really, really happy to be here chatting with you.
2: Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what is e f f t uh, We'll dive into some of the nuts and bolts of it, but who's it for? What's the goal? like what is a treatment for?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wish I would have named it something different, honestly, because the name is a bit misleading. It's not a traditional family therapy, you know, um, as the name suggests. It's because you when you think about traditional family therapy, it's like all the family members in the room, you know, working on communication or trust building or expressions of care. And EFFT is really different in that we're really recruiting parents, caregivers, spouses. Of individuals who are struggling with a mental health issue, for example, and we're giving them tools and we're giving them techniques in order to support their loved one in a good way. I mean, it does lead to improved family functioning, but it's more about helping family members with you know, proven techniques to support their loved ones who are going through a hard time essentially. And so that can be a four-year-old who's struggling with the transition of a new brother or sister. That could be a 40-year-old who's dealing with uh, difficulties with substance misuse, anywhere along that continuum. Um, so it's a very broad-based cross-diagnostic model. And it's also across the lifespan. So there are different modules within EFFT that um, the, the first three intervention modules have to do with behavioral support, emotional support, and what we call therapeutic apologies. And then the other two modules are a little different. Sometimes parents, caregivers can end up in patterns of uh, problematic parenting or problematic caregiving. They may you know be criticizing their loved one, or they may be in denial of their loved one's difficulties, or they may be accommodating or enabling some of their issues. And so the fourth module is all about helping caregivers to increase awareness about the potential of those patterns, but also to transform them. Um, Thankfully, those patterns are always coming from a place of love, um, but they can be problematic. And so we, we tend to them. And then the last module is about the same thing for clinicians. Clinicians, we can get into states of being where we can be critical of our patients, our clients, or we can be in denial about lack of progress, or we can be avoidant, you know, in our style. And so it's an opportunity for us as clinicians to reckon with our own humanity and kind of check in, attend to some of these potentially problematic processes and transform them ideally.
2: Yeah. So I want to highlight something about this that I think is really important. And I did a workshop with Mindy Solomon, who's also going to be coming on the podcast to talk a little bit more about the clinical applications of it. I think um, it was my first real exposure to EFFT. And what I was so struck by is that sort of transdiagnostic, like across the lifespan piece of it. Because although I was thinking specifically about how I talk to my own kids and how I help them with their emotions and that kind of thing. I was really struck by how as a clinician, it's so helpful and it's helpful with my adult clients. It's really yeah. is helpful throughout the whole span. Because, So could you tell a little bit about how, the, how EFT evolved to be so comprehensive?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it was really interesting because I first started out with the development of the model in the context of eating disorders with, with children, and adolescents, you know, um, part of eating disorder treatment for children, and adolescents involves tasking the parents with renourishing their child in the face of their refusal resistance, which what have you. Um, but, you know, it's like it's sometimes it's, it's really a critical situation in terms of physical health. So we really need to empower these parents to help them to feed their kids and to make sure that they don't have, other symptoms. Well, I would hear about parents coming back um, and saying, like, okay, we did the meal support. We insisted that she eat the whole entire meal, but literally plates were flying. And I was so astounded by that. I'm like, I don't know what to do about that, you know? And so I started to think about how can we help the parents tend to the emotion that's underlying, not just the eating disorder, but also that is so present when their child is so resistant, you know, so that we can avoid this whole plate flying thing. And then I came across uh, emotion focus therapy, which is all about helping adult clients process their emotions. And I thought, okay, well, we need to teach parents to use those skills with their kids, both because it'll target the root of the eating disorder, which We we know one of the risk factors is difficulties with emotion processing, but also because it'll make mealtimes less chaotic, but in in some cases less traumatic for all people involved. For everyone, right? For everybody. Yeah, it's extremely traumatic for an adolescent to to kind of have this awareness that they were throwing plates at their parents, you know, especially since most of these uh, young women that were in this program were like, A plus students, you know, very, very uh, responsible members of society, but, but when at the height of their illness, the fear related to weight gain or calories, whatever made it so that, you know, they'd act out in these ways. So it was terrifying for them. It was terrifying for their parents. And sometimes it was even scary for the treatment team. Like, oh my gosh, are we making them worse? You know? So in any case, it was really important to kind of target the underlying processing difficulties with emotion, but it was also really important to provide these skills, these strategies, these tools so that um, we weren't causing more problems going through the recovery process. So that's kind of how it started. And some people uh, clinically say, if you can work with eating disorders, you can work with anything because there's so much resistance. Like there's not that, that inherent, like, Drive to heal on the surface, like you would see with people who are struggling with other issues. And so I thought, okay, well, it seems to be working. Um, They're really positive benefits. Parents and caregivers are really grateful. Why don't we do this with people who are older? You know, why don't we try some of these same techniques with people who are older? And then we did, and it was remarkable. And parents and caregivers were so grateful because they had no idea what to do. And they were all pretzled up, like trying to figure out how to manage these incredibly difficult situations. And so then we got curious about, okay, well, if it works with eating disorders, what could it do in other domains of mental health? You know, like anxiety, depression, PTSD, OCD. And I mean, we, we expanded. We expanded in practice first, followed up by some research. And we saw that, um, across diagnoses, there are emotion processing deficits and across diagnoses, when we equip the loved ones of people who have these difficulties with emotion processing skills, uh, people get better a lot faster, (laughs) and and one of the coolest reasons why they get better a lot faster is because of the neuroscience of connection like on my best day as a therapist I will be able to affect a change for someone in a treatment room i mean you know it's it is shown that therapy works and that's a good thing but if i teach my client's spouse some of the same emotion processing skills that i would use in therapy and they use those skills infrequently and imperfectly, they are going to have way more of an impact than I'm going to have as an expert psychologist on my best day, you know, because of the love between them, because of the neurobiological bond between them, because their brains light up more in response to one another than they do a stranger who's a therapist, who cares about them, but not in the same way. And so in a way, it's like really leveraging... This connection for efficiency, <laughs> you know. So I, I know. I think that's really cool,
2: and it seems to matter. I mean, I think. I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about why it's important to engage the family or mm-hmm. caregiver, you know, whoever's caring for the person. Yeah, I mean, it could be a spouse, it could be a parent, even an adult. A parent, right. or an adult, or a kid. It's just who a friend, whoever it happens to be why do you think it's important to engage caregivers and what would you say to someone who feels intimidated or powerless in, I mean, cause these situations can yeah. be hard. You gave the example of plates throwing plates, in, yeah. you know, no matter what the situation is, if it's your child having a tantrum or if it's a substance mm-hmm. abuse, like it's very, I think sometimes family
1: almost feels like they want to, you know, give up or something. Yeah. Throw their hands up in the air. Like they've tried right. everything. For sure. Well, there are a couple of things I would say about that. There are hundreds of reasons why I believe caregivers need to be involved for their own sake first. And one of those reasons is that, um, especially when we're talking about burnout, you know, like you alluded to that in terms of like wanting to give up what we know about caregiver burnout is that burnout is more related to feeling ineffective and feeling like our efforts are not worthwhile. That's, that's the kind of pathway to burnout as a caregiver. However, if a caregiver feels like they have strategies that work and that are meaningful, it's actually quite empowering and self-reinforcing. I worked with a mother a few years ago of an adult woman with different mental health issues, and she was burnt out. Like she could hardly keep her eyes open during the caregiver workshop that I was facilitating. And Taught her some skills that day. I encouraged her to go try it. And she's, she, I remember she said to me, She's like, My daughter has been really unwell for many years. You think this is going to help? And I said to her, I'm like, I really, really do. It's so different than what you've been doing. It's so different from what we do in this culture. I really, really think there could be an impact. Give it a try if you have enough energy. She came back the next day because it was a two day workshop, beaming, excited. Couldn't wait to share. She's like, "Ah, oh, I used the emotion coaching strategy, and I didn't even get all the way through it." My daughter totally opened up, and we had, a, you know, as deep of a conversation as we've ever had. We stayed up way too late, you know, hanging out together, and it was amazing to witness the transformation of burnout, you know, from one day to the next. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about bringing in caregivers, is because. I want to teach them some skills that will make their life easier as well as support their loved one in a really, you know, positive, productive way. The other reason to bring in caregivers aside from the two that I've mentioned so far, the neurobiological bond and the antidote to burnout is that when there's someone in the family or someone in the system who has a serious or chronic mental health issue, it affects everybody. It polarizes patterns. It brings some people closer together. It drives other people apart, you know, in that same system. And in the UK, actually, which I find so amazing. If you are the, cl- a close person to somebody who has, um, serious or chronic health or mental health issue, you are entitled to a needs assessment. Hmm. You are entitled to, to support. And that could be, um, supportive care, or that could be the, the teaching of skills, you know, to help you navigate this challenging and unique situation. And so that's why I really feel passionate about it because it's good for everybody. It's good for everybody to have important people involved in, in ways that they feel comfortable, you know, um, so that, Outcomes are likely to improve for the person who's struggling, but also for the people who are supporting them. So it's kind of a win-win situation. Like the idea that someone comes for individual therapy as an adult has been a very popular idea for, well, since the history of psychology, basically. But I think now that we understand more about the neuroscience of connection, that's going to be one of our outdated ideas. Because like we're helping somebody on their own, but then they're going back to a system, you know, and right. we're not taking advantage of all of these incredible resources, human resources that are surrounding them.
2: Yeah. So I'm I I'm mean, hopeful
1: it's going to f- affect a, a change long-term.
2: Well, and it, it speaks to the context and how important the context is, but then also social support and how even like you said earlier, it doesn't have to be perfect, but even just mm-hmm. making some shifts can really benefit everyone gives people a sense of empowerment and mm-hmm. yes yeah that's right so i think one of the things that all these different groups have in common that you work with here you know children teenagers mm-hmm. adults who are struggling is this idea of helping people who have big feelings right like helping people with their emotions and i think mm-hmm. you know you think of adolescence in particular but also just really across the lifespan, mm-hmm. that some people do have strong emotions. Could you talk a little bit about what what do you, what are super feelers and what's going on with kind of emotional big big emotions, emotion dysregulation?
1: Yeah, well, so some people get dysregulated with small feelings, you know. So it's it's really kind of a, a unique interaction. Um, but when when people have big feelings, like we coined this term, the super feeler for a person who experiences their own emotions very strongly, but they also experience the emotions in their environment in a very acute manner. In other words, their radar for stress or distress in others is incredibly high. And when they have stress or distress, um, it can feel overwhelming. And, and that's tricky to live in this world because our world is already so um, stimulus rich that to then layer on like this really sharp antenna, um, no wonder people are seeking out methods of coping, methods of like soothing the nervous system, either through cutting or food restriction, binging or purging, through drug use, through shopping, inappropriate relationships, like, those strategies do work. They do help take the edge off the nervous system. Obviously they're maladaptive, you know, and they have health consequences, but it speaks to the, the crux of the issue. And that is in regulating uh, one's own emotions. There are different theories about how one becomes a super feeler. Some people think that, um, it's, uh, it's related to inborn temperament, other people, or, you know, or maybe even genetics, other people think like uh, early stress, early exposure to stress. Um, Others think that there are some neurobiological variations in terms of like number of receptors for oxytocin in the limbic system, you know, which is, we're getting complicated here, but there, or it could be a combination of all those factors. Like we just don't know what we do know though is that people who are super feelers need a little extra support than people who aren't to um, attend to move through um, emotional experiences of of varying intensity. Everybody needs that kind of support. But if you're a super feeler, you might need a little more.
2: Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Yeah. You need some of these skills that we're about to talk about today Mm -hmm. to be able to like, handle those emotions in an effective way. Um, I want to talk really quickly about one thing that gets, I think, a little bit tricky when there's potentially, you know, a family member, a child um, who is struggling with emotion regulation issues, which is the tendency to blame ourselves. And I think as a parent myself, sometimes when my kids are having a problem or when they're like, you know, losing it, my mind goes there, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, if I was a better parent, if I knew how to handle these things better. So I love the way that EFFT approaches that, the the issue of blame and that tendency mm-hmm. to blame. What, what would you say to someone who may be in that place of
1: wondering if it's all their own fault? Yeah. I mean, do they blame themselves for World War II is the first question. <laughs> <laughs> um probably not and uh World War II actually had a really strong influence on the ways parents engaged with different emotional states with their children. You know, like we were taught during that period that vulnerability was bad, hide your fear, stuff your sadness, you know, uh, tuck away your shame um because you know, wartime made it so that you had to be stoic, et cetera. But after the war ended, like, oops, we forgot to tell ourselves that like emotions are important. And now we need to go back and feel all those feelings to, you know, get back to get our systems back to baseline. And some of those values around emotion were transmitted to the parenting context and transmitted over generations. And so if parents are struggling to respond to their children's emotions whether they're specific emotions or they're more intense emotions, that's because we have not been taught how to do that. Um, so them and most other people on this planet. So when we think about the notion of parent blame, like to me, it's just such an irrelevant concept. Because if you, if you like pan out three generations, I mean, we're doing way better mm-hmm. <laughs> than where we came from. And we're going to continue to do better still. That's the process of evolution. I mean, of course I would want to still tend to that feeling of self-blame because that self-blame is also coming from a place of love and care and commitment, you know? And so I, I'd want to like preserve those beautiful aspects of it, but then clean up the rest um, because parents do the best they can with what they have, with what they were given, with, you know, what they learned, and that to me is true 100% of the time. And sometimes people challenge me on this. Oh, well, you're telling me that a parent who decides to, you know, blank, you know, some not so good thing, you're telling me that they're doing the best they can. When they, when they purposely do this or do that, and I'm like, yep, I do. Pan out the last three generations of that person's life. Look at the different social and historical influences that have shaped the generations that came before them that have that shaped their experience their interaction with the world today and it will you will be hard pressed to find a parent even a parent who's engaging in problematic parenting patterns who's not doing their best
2: that's right i love that i mean i think that it really speaks to how this is a skill set that applies to everyone but a lot of times we didn't learn it That's right. In our own upbringing. And I love that piece around coming from a place of love. I think in acceptance and commitment therapy, Mm -hmm. we talked a lot about how pain and values are joined together. Right. And I think that if you're sitting there at two in the morning blaming yourself for a problem that your teenager is having, you can look at that as a sign of like, what matters to you? What do you care about? Obviously, you Mm -hmm. don't want your teenager to be suffering, but. The fact that you're, you're suffering because of that suffering just shows how much you
1: care. That's right. The, the only downside to self-blame is that it does restrict the capacity for connection. And so a parent who's in a state of self-blame um, is going to be less able to tolerate when their child has normal expressions of rejection. Um, or normals, uh, normal desires to separate or individuate or, exp- or expresses, you know, normal uh, expressions of criticism or anger, you know, a parent who's in a state of self-blame is going to have a lot more difficulty holding that um, and helping their child move through that experience. And so for me, that's one of the, there are two reasons to help a parent with, with self-blame. One, for their own sake, because carrying self-blame is like carrying a bucket of rocks up an already steep hill of life. <laughs> That's the first reason. The second reason is that the self-blame creates this, uh, this experience of folding in onto the self. You know, this ruminative, like, oh my gosh, how could I have done that? How could I have done that? Which makes it so that they're less present for their child and able to like hold those tougher states. Um, so, I mean, actually, if you go on my website, mentalhealthfoundations.ca under clinician resources, clinician videos, the very first video is about helping to transform caregiver self blame. Um, because, you know, we that's the last thing we need is to be blaming ourselves for situations where we're clearly doing our best with what we've got you know so i don't know i feel really strongly about helping parents free themselves from those shackles
2: you know i had a client once whose kids i think were in their probably 20s and 30s and she was in tears one day talking about blame she had for herself for things from when her kids were little and she had never talked about that before mm-hmm. openly and she was literally in tears and i just thought wow she's been carrying that bucket of rocks for decades yeah you know it's just so heartbreaking when you think about the load, right? The emotional load of
1: that. Oh, and you know, if you, if you take a little stroll in the maternity ward of any hospital and you ask every single mother in that ward, do you have a story of self-blame around how you could have been a better mother to your newborn? I can guarantee you every single one of those moms, Will have a story of like, oh, I I lifted something heavy that I probably shouldn't have, or oh, I feel like I wasn't as on top of the vitamins as I should have been. Right. Like it starts so freaking early, you know. And dads have it too. Uh, it tends to be stronger in the person who's carrying, you know, the 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 child. Um, so I don't mean to exclude dads. Dads certainly have have narratives of self blame also. So there's got to be some evolutionary aspect to this or it's just really deeply ingrained you know in in our in our conditioning in our culture yeah. but it's it's also super sad you know <laughs> so it's like i i love helping parents and caregivers free themselves yeah yeah free themselves i love that well again we're going to
2: talk With Mindy, more about clinical applications of EFFT, Mm -hmm. but I want to dive in a little bit more to some of the actual strategies here in your work, specifically with parents and caregivers of kids and teenagers. And a lot of this, again, your book for parents and caregivers is called What to Say to Kids When Nothing Seems to Work, which is Mm -hmm. so fitting because you have all these examples of these really hard situations (laughs) that happen all the time. And it's like, I don't know what to say because no matter what I say, it seems wrong. Um, but let's start with the wrong part. Right. Like that. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't want to say wrong. That's a little harsh. But like the ways that we tend to respond, those you call them knee jerk responses. And mm-hmm. certainly we all do them. Right. And it's not again, it's not like a, a massive crime against humanity here, but they tend right. to be a little bit unhelpful. Right. So what are some of the kinds of things that you see in terms of those automatic responses that are are like not quite what we're going for here. Yeah.
1: Like, okay, for kids and teens, one of the most common ones is I hate school. Like if you think of your knee-jerk response for I hate school, it's gonna be something, yeah, but you need to go, or it's not that bad, or you'll learn to like it. You know, it's like, and the You're truth You're so lucky is, to
2: have an education, right? Right. I mean, you try to yes. talk them out of it. Yeah. Exactly.
1: You know, like so that's a really, really, really common one. Um, you know, or I feel sad, you know, a parent might say like, Oh, why do you feel that way? And oh, I I wish that I could see my friend Sally today. Oh, well, you'll see her again, like reassurance, problem solving, and rationalization are three of the most frequent um, knee jerk responses that we observe in our culture. And when when I've surveyed literally hundreds of people about different types of knee jerk responses, the the top three are reassurance, problem solving and questioning. Um, so it's, it's, it's uh, woven into the fabric of our culture. The problem though, is that it doesn't work. And so let me just do a really, really brief demonstration. Okay.
3: Great. So
1: yes. I'm going to invite you, Debbie, to put yourself into a resistant, like, I don't want to go to school stance. Okay. Like just put your body in that stance and okay. whoever's listening, try it out um, to see the difference. I don't want to go to school and I'm going to say some words and you just tell me what happens below the neck. Like if your resistance increases or just decreases by what I say. Okay. You're ready. Okay. Okay. Put yourself in that resistance state and just say, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go to school. I know, honey, but you have to go to school. School is like your job. I need to go to work. You need to go to school and trust me, it'll help you later to get to where you want to go. Okay. Did you feel Mm -hmm. the resistance increase in your body? Yeah. Like to me, I wish we had billboards all across the world saying our typical strategies of responding to resistance actually increase resistance. And then it frustrates us all, right? It's so frustrating. But some, some recent advances in neuroscience has demonstrated that if you can speak out loud the reasons why the other is feeling resistant, the brain registers it as like okay you know the alarm bells can can tone down a little bit because the external environment has processed what we're saying about this even if they don't agree so let Mm -hmm. me just demonstrate it a second time okay so on when i say go put your body back into that resistance say i don't want to go to school and then again just notice what happens below the neck not don't worry about what you want to say back just notice the physiology of of um of what it's like okay okay are you ready Put yourself into that resistant place. Tell me, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go to school. I do not blame you for not wanting to go to school today because there are probably 700 other things you would rather be doing with your time because sometimes school is hard and sometimes school is uninteresting and staying at home feels a heck of a lot better most days. So did you feel your body relax?
2: I did. And I felt sort of like, I found myself nodding, like, yeah,
1: get it. You understand. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And that creates a state of physiological and psychological openness and flexibility so that when you follow it up with, I promise it's not going to be forever. You'll get through the day. I believe in you. When you get home, you know, we'll we'll set aside some time to play some cards. Now get out of bed and get your clothes on. (laughs) Yeah. That means that that kid, that teenager is going to be more open, more flexible, more likely to follow your lead than if they were increasingly in a state of resistance. So even if you don't agree using this strategy with sincerity, so not as a ploy, you know, really putting yourself in their shoes, speaking the reasons why they might not want to, to go to school that has the most profound effect on the brain in terms of creating that state of, of increased collaboration, cooperation, etc.
2: Yeah. And I think it takes practice because it isn't necessarily what we're used to doing. We do have oh that tendency to try to jump in and reassure, talk them out of it, mm-hmm. make them feel better. Actually, Adele, one of the things I noticed I tend to do sometimes, I think I was trying to tap into my own kids, like, common humanity, like you're not alone, is that I would say, so for instance, my daughter was telling about feeling rejected socially Mm, one mm. day. And I said, oh yeah, that's happened to me before too. I remember. And she immediately was like, that's not helpful. Because I think I was trying to like, be like, it's okay. I think the vibe underneath it was a little bit of like, don't worry. We all face that. Like I was trying to make her feel better. And it was definitely not a good move. Luckily, she told me, so I've been cautious yeah. doing that. That's the beauty like, of I don't it. Really care about that,
1: the kids will tell you. They'll tell you by you know by verbally telling you, like your daughter did, or they'll tell you by like rolling their eyes or by cutting the conversation short. they are all these markers of like, ooh, not helpful. But you know, when we look at your intentions, your motivations, I mean, they're so beautiful right? It's like wanting her to know, like rejection is a part of life. There's nothing wrong with her. It's happened to you too. You can imagine like, I mean, it's, it really is so loving. The problem is the brain, the brain wants that kind of stuff, just not first, right? (laughs) The brain wants the, I can imagine why you would feel that way from your perspective. And let me give you three reasons why. So it's in the book, you know, we invite parents to use three, because statements. And then when they're more open and flexible, then you can say all that good stuff that you said, and it's likely to have a more positive result. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really like, which is awesome. It's like, we're not asking parents or caregivers to like completely change everything that they're doing. No, not at all. The reassurance, the problem solving, that's actually really effective. But as a second step, you need to have that first step in order to um, bring malleability to the organism, you know, to like open them up, to soften them up, to create that flexibility. And then the reassurance and problem solving is going to be great. So it's, it's the order of operations that's critical.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, part of what you're talking about is validating and helping them understand that you get it. And then building a bridge as you call it in your Mm -hmm. book, like Mm -hmm. connecting with them, kind of translating almost. I was wondering what are your thoughts about how to build a bridge in those moments when maybe it's hard to connect with them like yeah. they're upset, you're <sighs> upset, I don't know. What are your yeah. how do you,
1: how do you do that? I mean, you know, it's hard it, it, when when we're when we're dysregulated, then we we lose um, connection to our capacity for creative creativity and flexibility and all those good things that are required in order to put ourselves in the other person's shoes. And so, you know, sometimes we have to blow it and then go back and be like, you know, when you said this and I said this, I should have said this. And that's actually one of the chapters in the book. It's called the do over. I can't tell you how powerful it is for a kid of any age, to have a parent come to them and say, I messed that up. I wish I would have done it differently. And so it's never too late. Here's, here's me, you know, giving it another go. Mm -hmm. That is so incredibly powerful and healing. And it really flies in the face of how our parents were taught to raise us, like never admit to fault, you know, Like, I don't know about you, but like, that's certainly the culture that I was raised in. Like parents don't admit to fault and they don't apologize, you know, and it's an opportunity to correct that cycle, to, to break that cycle. But if, if a parent is able to kind of get kind of connect with themselves, maybe they take a couple deep breaths as a general rule, kids act out because they feel overwhelmed. They feel stress or distress. Of some type, you know, or they're trying to seek comfort um or relief from stress or distress in some way. And so if all else fails, you could say, like, oh yeah, I I could understand why you'd want to hit your brother because you're feeling really sad about being left out, you know. You can just imagine that there's a sweetness to all problematic behaviors. Not we don't wanna we don't wanna make it okay by highlighting the sweetness, but we're highlighting the sweetness because that's part of the thing that's going on. And then we're going to correct the behavior, you know? So, but yeah, it, it is hard. I don't want parents to feel like they need to get it right though all the time because like we're human too. We get dysregulated, you know, we get impatient. Um, So that's the wonder of the do-over. In fact, it's one of my favorite chapters in the book because it's like, it, it's, And it's real, like it's not just lip service. Like it's actually real that doing a do-over can be as powerful, if not more powerful than getting it right the first time.
2: Yeah, and I mean, it's coming from a place of genuineness in the sense that like we mess up too and we can own that and role model to our kids.
1: Yeah, it's never too late. It's never too late. Right, right. And we've had parents do do do-overs that were five years old. Memories are not stored chronologically, but more by intensity. And so if there is an intense memory, you can bring it back up, help process the emotion, the emotional tags, you know, associated with the memory. And then when the memory goes back in, it gets filed in a different filing cabinet of like lesser intense memories. So the do over is kind of magical. It can heal old wounds. It doesn't just have to be, you know, that day or that week. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah.
2: Um, and how powerful is that right Mm -hmm. yeah so I'm wondering so you have emotion coaching which I love that concept and I love we've talked about emotion coaching sometimes on the podcast before Gottman's work and yeah I know you you drew from in your model but you don't just end it there you also have the practical support as you Mm -hmm. said you know you start with validation and emotion coaching. And there's a lot more to that. People can read and look at your videos and that kind of thing. Practical support. Would you be willing to do a couple more examples to kind of illustrate what that might look like? For sure.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And I guess I'll just say one thing about the Gottman difference is that John Gottman's model was created for little kids, you know, where emotion words can be used much more freely but in our culture we have been conditioned at a young age to the, you know to not use emotion words as freely and so that's why i adapted my version of emotion coaching so that you can validate thoughts attitudes urges behaviors not just emotions and so i mean i've always bowed down to john gottman because like he's the He's the original, you know, um, yeah. but yeah, so that's kind of the difference between the two If people are wondering, but yeah, let's do, a, let's do a couple scenarios. Well, I'm glad you
2: pointed that out real quick because, um, I think that you have expanded it, right. And mm-hmm. brought it into, you've made it a little bit more broad and brought it into these other areas as well. So mm-hmm. that's a really good point because the book, the Gottman book on this, um, was really like a parenting manual for little kids. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I mean again it's the same skill whether it's like my adult client or mm-hmm. my you know young child because I think we're all learning how to deal with our emotions in an effective way no matter what age we are and how skilled we are at this. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm, exactly.
2: Okay so first example I have two. Okay. Now this is like a daily occurrence in my home practically <laughs> not not really but I think a lot of parents will relate. Okay. So I tell my kids it's time to stop watching a TV show. Uh-huh. Or stop you know get off their Chrome Electronics and of of whatever. Icon, right. Mm-hmm. And they fly into a rage. Um, I especially have one child, I shall not name names here, but who tends to be a little hot tempered, right? Mm-hmm. And just starts yelling and screaming like, I'm mm-hmm. a Marla, you're the worst parent, you know, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, how would I respond to that using this technique?
1: Well, first of all, if 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 you know already that you have a kid who's much more reactive to those types of situations, I would do a little front loading. And so the first thing I would do would be to enter the space and be like, Oh, what are you playing? Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Oh, that's so fun. What's that little, what's that little mushroom guy for? Okay. And what, Oh my, look at your level. Like, so engage, engage, engage with interest, with curiosity, with connection, like I remember um my stepson was staying with us over the summer and I made it my job to learn everything there was to learn about Fortnite because I knew that one of our biggest battles was going to be transitioning from Fortnite during the summer to do other family-oriented activities that were not as fun, you know? And so I learned that whole game inside out, I'm telling you. It was such a worthwhile investment. Because I would front load, you know, but not just as a strategy. I would do it occasionally. Sometimes we even play together. And I think there's such a bad rap out there for video games and electronics that parents really engage with their children in a way that's quite negative around them, you know, like sharing negative judgments around them. And I don't know that that's the right thing to do because it's like, if we're so negative about these electronics, why are we giving them to our kids? If we're going to give them to them, then we should also celebrate how fun they can be, how entertaining they can be, how useful they can be, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you'd want to pepper that in every once in a while.
2: I mean, that first of all, that makes it so much less of a power struggle. And oh, it's joined together. I actually started watching a show with them once my kids once in a while that was on Netflix and it was kind of actually the show is better than I thought. I was like laughing with them because Oh, yes. Yeah. They love that. Right.
1: Yeah. They love that. They love that because for most of their day, they are doing what adults tell them to do. It is so refreshing for a kid to have an adult do what they want to do. You know, it's so cool. So anyway, so we do a little bit of peppering of that front loading. Um, And then when it's time, like you can use humor, you know, if, if that's going to go well with your kid, like for example, all right, kiddo, I have some really bad news, you know, It's time to get off your device. And then we expect they're going to have a blowout, you know, like some, I don't want to, okay, it's totally fine. So you're not seeing it as disrespectful or rude. You're seeing it as like a normal response. And that's when you start. So you, you did what I did earlier. You state three reasons why it would make sense for them to feel like it's unfair or to not want to get off their device or to not want to do the thing that you want them to do, you know? And I would I would use energy. So if they're energetic about their resistance, then I would be energetic with my validation as long as it's sincere. So it sounds something like this. I do not blame you for wanting to, for not wanting to follow me around to the grocery store. It is not the coolest place for you to be. And I bet that if, you know, you could stay on for like just one more hour, it would feel so good to get to that next level. And I'm also thinking that you're probably tired of adults telling you what to do today. And so those are the three potential statements. And each one, the inflection goes down. Why? Because if the inflection goes up, they're expecting you to say, but. And so they're going to be defensive. And so it's very strategic, you know, inflection goes down and then you offer them a little emotional support, which sounds silly for electronics, but it's actually important. Electronics are designed to be addictive, you know, so it is actually hard to transition. And so I might say like, okay, bud, I promise you, you will be able to play later or tomorrow, whatever the rule is. Um, And it won't, you know, what we're doing is not going to take forever, and I do want what you want. And I appreciate, you know, how much fun you have on this game. And then you follow it up with practical support and practical support in this situation is helping them practically to transition. And so you might say, I'll set, I have no problem setting an alarm for two minutes to help you with the transition. When the alarm goes, then it's time. If you're not able to transition, we'll have to talk about a consequence. Okay. Or it could be, um, like, why don't I put it on pause and we'll go quick, quick to do our errands and then we'll see what the rest of the evening looks like. So anything to do with helping them transition, whether it's problem solving, whether it's distraction, you know, whether it's, um, giving them a plan for a return to enjoyment, you know, with this activity that will all work super well. But I want parents to know that even if they use all of these strategies, it doesn't mean their kid is gonna go from, I don't wanna own, you're terrible, to woohoo, yeah, right. let's do this, right? No, it's not that's not gonna happen. Anyone who tells you that they have a strategy that's gonna lead to that kind of outcome, like run away because it's like snake oil. It's not true. <laughs> yeah,
2: not realistic, <laughs> but, right? <laughs> no,
1: but yeah. it is gonna make it um easier to transition. So this approach is all about increase in flexibility, inc- increase in cooperation. And so it's going to make it you know, so that you have a, a bit more flexibility uh, between you to get whatever you need to do done.
2: Yeah. And I think in the long run, it helps them understand their emotions better, which mm-hmm. will help. I mean, even yes, they might still lose it when you take away yeah. their game. But I think over time, it's like there's an effect of that.
1: Absolutely. And it strengthens the relationship because then they really feel like you get them, you want to get them, you care about them. And also you're the boss, you know, and that's actually Mm -hmm. kids need to know who's the boss at the same time. So it's like, it's a perfect balance of both. They're important and you're important. Yeah.
2: Okay. Next example. Um, so Imagine that your child, any age, actually, this could be even a teenager, an adult, a child comes home from school, you can tell they're upset, but they're not really saying much. You can tell mm-hmm. they're in a funk. Then later, like maybe at dinner, they, they get self-critical, right? Like nobody mm-hmm. likes me. I'm no good at math. They're just really down on themselves. Yeah. How would you respond to that?
1: Well, there's two elements that you've actually brought up there that are really important. One is that they come home from school looking sullen, but don't talk to you about it. So that's number one. So one of the things that I suggest parents do in those situations is to start there. Be like, hey, bud, looks like looks like you had a rough day. And they'll probably say no, right? Uh, No, or I don't want to talk about it. And that's when you start using the approach. I don't blame you for not wanting to talk to me about it. Sometimes I can say the wrong thing, or sometimes I don't always listen and I want to rush in to reassure or to give you tips how to solve the problem or, you know, whatever, so give three reasons why it would make sense for them to not want to talk about it, including the fact that it might be weird for them to talk to their parents about these things. So you're kind of naming like, yeah, it makes sense to me that you'd be hesitant to talk to me about these things because, because, because I want you to know that, um, I've been learning some new skills and, uh, I see that sometimes I haven't always done it right and I'm feeling pretty good, you know, about maybe being able to help you in a different way. And so I just want you, just want you to know that I'm here. I'm available. If you end up changing your mind, most, most kids will want to save face and like still remain clammed up for a little while. And most kids will eventually open up to test the waters because they do want your support. They really do. Um, they just struggle sometimes with some of the more conditioned ways that we respond to their stress or distress, which makes it so that if it happens at dinner time, you are like, Oh, I'm so stupid. Or, you know, mm, I'm never going to make it. You're going to have more, openness on their part and so then again you enact that same strategy. Well first you could ask a question did anything happen you know or what did something happen or something go on And if they're like no, just in general you you still use the same strategy like yeah, I could imagine why I'd feel that way because you know when you're a teenager and things don't go well at school, it's like normal to kind of look at yourself and be like what did I do? how could I be different so that you can avoid that from ever happening again because man, it probably doesn't feel so good. And notice I'm using very tentative language. You might feel maybe probably like I'm allowing for the possibilities that I am wrong so that they can say, no, it's not that it's this. And then they mm. give you the goods, right? <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah. I failed a, failed a test or I didn't get as high on my test or I only got an 85 on my test. And the knee jerk response for that is like an 85. That's amazing, right? but you know the kid's upset and so you're like okay well why would it make sense for for a kid who got 85 to be upset well cuz my kid really values education and part of their identity is like they are a good student and they really want to get into that really good university so bingo here's another opportunity oh man even though 85 could be considered a really good grade I can understand why you'd be upset because you are the kind of kid who wants to show your best all the time and who works really really hard to do that. And I know that you're really eyeing that specialized program, you know, for for college, and so it makes sense to me that you'd feel bummed by that. Like think of the difference in terms of a response than what they would get from any other member of our culture on any given day. Now, once they're like, oh, yeah, you know, like whether they say it or not, then you can say, you know, I have a feeling it's not going to affect the rest of your life, you know. And if you want, we can talk to the teacher or I can help you for the next one um, to see if we might be able to boost your grade that way. Or we can just look to see, like, is this actually going to have an impact so that you can rest knowing that you can let this go? You can leave this behind you. So that's that whole sequence, the three because statements emotional support, and then some practical support.
2: Great. I mean, this is so helpful. And I think people who are interested in learning more should look at your book for a bunch of other examples like this. It's just refreshing because I think sometimes there is such a tendency to argue with kids, even when they're self-critical, like, no, you're the greatest. Yeah. you know? And it's like, that doesn't actually help because they'll no. they'll argue back, right? They'll be like, I'm not. You know, it just gets to this yeah. unhelpful place. And so this is so refreshing.
1: Um yeah. Oh, I'm glad to hear that because honestly, like my, my motivation doing this is for parents first. Yeah. So that parents don't have to feel so stuck, you know, like wanting to help their kids. And obviously it has a beautiful domino effect, you know, for the child too. But I mean, you know, I'm a parent, it's freaking hard. I'm a step parent, which has its, a host of unique challenges, you know,
0: <laughs> Yeah. Um,
1: but it's like, it's hard and, and it's also one of the most important job that we all have, you know, so anything that uh, we can do to ease that for our fellow brothers and sisters, you know, that's, that's a good day.
2: Well, I want to finally wrap up by asking you a little bit about your current directions, because I know you've, you've moved more into doing research on psychedelics and the therapeutic use of psychedelics. We actually, Mm -hmm. my co-host Jill did an episode recently on psychedelics and therapy, Um, And I know you have a lot to say about this. So Mm -hmm. could you just give a few words about what you've seen in your work in terms of the healing impact of of psychedelics with people and families who are struggling? Like, how does this fit into your work that you're doing?
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting because I started working with psychedelics, like doing the research in 2014, actually. So I've been carrying these two lines of interest and research for the last number of years. And now it's like, Probably the most exciting for me professionally is that I get to combine them. And so, really looking at the integration of EFFT principles and techniques into clinical uh, protocols with psychedelics. So, for example, we have a study going on um, in the UK uh, for people with eating disorders, and they're taking psilocybin as part of a treatment and their caregivers are involved doing some EFFT work, which is really, really cool. And there's another study with MDMA. I completed another one with ketamine and um, there are many, many different applications that are, that are proving to be promising. But the one that's probably the most relevant for this conversation is the potential for psychedelics to help parents and caregivers forgive themselves for hard things that happened, you know, in their past as parents. And also to override some of that cultural conditioning that makes it so that it's harder for them to be there for their kids in the ways that they want. That has been really, really remarkable. I interviewed a woman recently who participated in a psychedelic retreat abroad. And she talked about how it transformed her parenting. And she realized, you know, that there were some of her own fears, some of her own shame that was getting in the way of being able to be there for her daughter in the ways that she needed. Um, but she also like had these epiphanies, these revelations about like what her daughter really needed, very, very specifically. And it transformed their relationship, you know, which I thought was really powerful. So psychedelics are mostly being looked at right now in the context of mental health issues, like as a, as a adjunct to treatment or as a treatment in of itself. But I see the promise of psychedelics more broadly in terms of healing um, relationships and relationships within families, but also relationships between cultures, between political parties, between religions. And there's this really great study that just came out in the last um, six or eight months, Uh, Lior Roseman from Imperial College. He just published a study looking at the potential of psychedelics to heal um, divides between Israelis and Palestinians. Wow. And the results are, oh my gosh, it's so amazing. And so when you think about what's possible in that cultural, religious context, and the, so then what must be possible in a family context, you know, like, oh my gosh, it's just so exciting.
2: That's really interesting. Yeah, how it sort of opens up people from some of these blocks and mindsets that they're stuck in, and that there's potential for it to be used not just for internal healing, but for those like more relational and social and political. Interesting. Wow. Really fascinating. Yeah. Well, Adele, I really appreciate your time and coming on to share your expertise and these really helpful strategies with us. Can you point our listeners toward your resources again, your webpage and other resources Mm -hmm. that they might find helpful to if people want to learn more about your
1: work? Absolutely. Yeah. There are so many free on-demand resources for both caregivers and clinicians at www.mentalhealthfoundations.ca um you can also learn more about uh, some of this research that we've talked about both relating to efft and psychedelics as well as events that are coming up at my personal website which is www.dradellefranc.com um so those are probably the two kind of best uh resources in terms of getting access to you no know, free on demand um help <laughs>
2: Great. Well, be sure to check that out. And Adele, thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a
0: review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or purchase POTC Swag at our merch store by going to offtheclockpsych.com slash merch.
3: We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller.
2: This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.